Welcome to the Politica's premier radio podcast. The Politica is a global affairs club operating under Boston University, in which we encourage intellectual conversation among students in the pursuit of higher knowledge in the field of interdisciplinary academic research. My name is Lily Nan, and I am the co-founder and co-president of the Politica. And I'm Anthony Colton, one of two chief justices of positioning at the Politica. Today's podcast is the start of our Massachusetts fourth congressional district election series. In wake of the upcoming congressional election on November third, twenty twenty, the Politica is providing a platform for candidates to reach out and share their prospective policies. On August first, we interviewed Dr. Natalia Linos, a Harvard-trained epidemiologist and Democrat for Congress. She shared her plans on COVID-19 recovery, affordable education, environmental sustainability, and social justice. So my name is Dr. Natalia Linos, and I'm an epidemiologist, a mom of three little kids, and I'm a congressional candidate in the fourth district. And I entered this race because of the COVID tragedy. Uh, as all of you know, we have now reached over 140,000 dead, uh, reaching rates of a thousand Americans dying every single day, 70,000 being infected every single day. And you know, right before we got started, Lila told me she's in Miami. Some parts of our country are really uh, struggling right now. And the fact is, we are one of the wealthiest countries. We have some of the best doctors, some of the best nurses, some of the best hospitals. This epidemic was preventable. And yet our federal government has failed us. It has failed every American, but especially Americans of color, Native Americans, and communities where low-income workers were not provided with adequate protections and expected to show up to work um, unfairly and unjustly. So in early March, I um, wrote a piece with a former New York City health commissioner. We had one death then. And I said that the deep inequities of our country the deep racism, our residential segregation, and our anti-immigrant sentiment, as well as our mistrust for science, you know, we have seen kind of the anti-vax movement, really put us at a um, point where we could have the worst epidemic among any wealthy country. We highlighted the fact that we have so many millions of Americans who are uninsured or underinsured, as well as our just our broken system, our healthcare system. And day by day, month by month, this um, fear this warning turned into reality. So late, late April, I decided that it was time for me to step up. I have the skills as an epidemiologist, but I also have the experience working at the United Nations for a decade to bring both the global perspective and the technical expertise to this crisis. But you and I know that COVID is not the only crisis we're facing. We're facing a climate emergency. We're facing a racial um, justice reckoning. Uh, and both of those issues are issues I have significant experience throughout my career. And I feel that it's important for me to stress that. I am a scientist, I am a mom, I'm an epidemiologist, but I'm also someone who led the UN's work on climate and health. I'm also someone who worked at the New York City Health Department to ensure that we could call out racism as a public health priority to say that racism kills both directly through police violence, but also indirectly through maternal mortality, infant mortality at rates much higher for Black Americans than anybody else. So I've entered this race to be a strong progressive voice, but what makes me different is that I approach every question, every bill, every law, every problem through a data-driven approach. And that is different because right now our Congress has 14 scientists, that's it. There's one person with a PhD in epidemiology and that's dangerous. It's dangerous always. We have seen you know, the climate change deniers, but it's dangerous, especially at a time of a global pandemic. So I'm here to serve, 
I have three-year-old twins. This is not convenient to be running uh, with a family of little ones. Uh, it's tough on them. It's tough on our family, but it is the right thing. When you have a skill set that's unique, you step up. So I've stepped into the race and I hope today in this conversation, you'll get a sense of why, who I am, what I stand for, and what I hope to bring to Massachusetts to represent the fourth, but also what I hope to bring to our country because the federal government needs more people who have a diverse background. So thanks so much for having me. Of course, we're really excited to conduct the rest of this interview. Uh, I think that gives our audience a really good background and some good context knowledge for the rest of the interview. And um, if they haven't been seeing already, a lot of the campaign material circulating on platforms such as the Politica has these three main points that stick out the most, which are healthy communities, shared prosperities, healthy planet. So would you be able to elaborate more on these three main points embedded into the fundamentals of your campaign and initiatives? Of course. So I'm a social epidemiologist. And let me clarify that a social epidemiologist looks at health, not simply as the absence of illness, not simply about whether or not we can access good healthcare. That's important. But a social epidemiologist sees health as shaped by our neighborhoods, where we live, where we grow, where we play, where we love, where we pray. You know, it's about our houses. It's about our environment. It's about everything outside the healthcare system, just as it is about healthcare. So it's important to stress that my platform is around healthy neighborhoods and calling attention to the fact that for example, pollution and air pollution, whether or toxic waste is not distributed equally. We have communities where there is deep environmental injustice. Similarly, housing, you know, and school quality. So a social epidemiologist thinks about residential segregation and says, you know, is this harming our families? Is this harming our kids? Is this harming our health? Uh, looks at racism as a key factor of how health is shaped. So healthy communities is central a central pillar, but it's basically saying we need to pay attention to housing, we need to pay attention to education, we need to pay attention to our families and our workplaces. Healthy Planet, let me jump there, is about climate. It's also about environmental justice today, you know, uh, toxic waste, landfills, uh, pollution that we are facing today. And it calls for us to really understand how we as you know, humans interact with our, our planet. Um, I have, you know, we'll get into a little bit more of this, I'm sure, later in the conversation, but through my perspective working at the United Nations, I know that the environmental impact is not distributed equally, right? The countries, the communities who are least responsible for climate change are also the ones who are suffering the most. So there's a deep social justice lens to my entire planetary health uh, platform. There's also a lot of optimism around you guys, young people. I have worked with youth, uh, young leaders from across the world, from Nigeria to the Philippines, to London, to, uh, you know, to Fiji, who have said, you know, we are here to demand a better future. And I really believe that the planetary health platform, the, you know, you know, a healthy planet is something that um, more of us in Congress should be putting as our top priority, because it really is an existential crisis. The last piece is around shared prosperity. Our country has deeply, deeply failed so many Americans. We are one of the wealthiest countries, and yet we have deep poverty. So many children, and it's really disproportionate families with children, um, face uh, hunger, face food insecurity. We have homelessness. We have um, some parts of our country where there's no running water, or if the water is running, there's lead in it. 
there is such a deep inequity in the standard of living that we need to call for shared prosperity. You know, if our country is doing well, we should all be doing well. And that is not what's happening right now. So, you know, my policies talk to a living wage. They also talk to unemployment benefits, which is so central right now in the COVID response. They talk to our workers' rights. You know, during COVID, I've been working with the Poor People's Campaign. They set up a health justice advisory committee. And, you know, Reverend Barber and his movement for Moral Mondays has been trying to push that politicians need to talk about poverty. It's sort of had become taboo. And with his movement, there has been much more attention to poverty. And now it's the intersection of poverty and racism and workers' rights. Really, you know, since the beginning of this pandemic, we were talking about uh, workers, frontline workers, the nurses and the doctors and their PPE, but we weren't really talking about the grocery store workers who didn't also didn't have PPE. And so that has been a central part of my platform. We need to think about workers. We need to think about a living wage. We need to think about an economy that actually works. Um, and in our district, that means paying attention to differential rates of unemployment, to jobs that are being lost in, you know, parts of Taunton or Fall, Fall River. And all of these are interconnected. I just spoke to them as if they're three pillars, but obviously uh, a healthy planet requires green, new jo green jobs and a commitment to the Green New Deal. And similarly, healthy environments is around housing reform and affordable housing links into our shared prosperity. So we can separate them into three pillars, but I think what is most exciting about my campaign is that I take a really structural approach, seeing problems as interconnected, and I really see the intersectional um, challenges that families face. If you are a black mom of a child and you're poor, you have a different trajectory if you live in a neighborhood that is segregated with bad schools versus, you know, it's sort of overlaying levels of injustice. So the framing is all about science and equity. And I, those are interdependent and interlinked in my entire platform. Awesome. Thank you so much for giving us more insight into your platform and the pillars that it stands on. With everything that you said in your introduction, mentioning that there's only 14 scientists in Congress that we're facing one of the worst epidemics in our country, um, of any country, um, I want to know how you would plan on tackling, you know, the gridlock that politics often becomes on the Senate, or sorry, on the Congress House floor, and how would you make your presence known in the face of career politicians? Yeah, so I'm not a career politician. And I think that's actually what's appealing about me. I speak the way I speak, which is honest. And I say what I know and what I don't know. I think I have a level of credibility because of being a scientist in the middle of a COVID pandemic. So I think that does give me a sense of credibility, but I need to be honest with you and with everybody listening in. I am gonna be a freshman and there's gonna be power games that happen. What I have to offer though, is that I have expertise that nobody else has. So I think as long as I'm willing to do the work, to really do the work and not need to get the attention and the coverage, people will come to me because I have a skill set that is just rare. And that is how I will build trust. I will build trust as someone who's hardworking, who is willing to, to work for the better good of our communities. I'm there to serve. I'm not there to be you know, the poster person, but I will not sacrifice my progressive values. And that is where I need everybody to know that I am clear. I am clear that what drives me is a commitment to the right to health. What drives me is a commitment that we do not leave your generation or my kids' generation a planet that is broken 
that we have destroyed any chance they have to have a real, you know, in terms of climate change. And, but I think, you know, yes, politics are divisive, but I've worked at the United Nations for 10 years with countries fighting in a very divisive space. I have seen how negotiations happen behind the scenes, how people respect people who are willing to listen and willing to do the work. And so those are the two things I bring. I will listen, I will do the work, but I will not compromise my values. Great to hear. And I think going more on those progressive values and prioritization of health rights, um, we see that your experience also includes um, serving as a science advisor to the New York City Health Commissioner. And one of the projects, including Thrive New York City, which was the mayor's $800 million citywide mental health initiative to tackle issues um, such as the opioid overdose. So um, we see that there is a bit of a fragmentation on support for initiatives such as this. We have Stephen Ide, a senior fellow from the Conservative Manhattan Institute, um, and an expert on homelessness and urbanization. He said that, and quote, it's about trying to give people who are socio socioeconomically disadvantaged access to the same kind of mental health care that people in the upper middle income or affluent communities have enjoyed as a matter of, of course, for a very long time, end quote. So that kind of programming doesn't necessarily address the institutional problems like homelessness and serious mental illness, which are, you know, both financial and safety burdens to a city as a whole. So how do we bring something like Thrive to Boston and how could we overcome the hurdles faced um, from the New York City chapter? So Thrive was very comprehensive and it wasn't just the public health department. It was across all departments, NYPD, um, domestic violence, you know, different criminal justice, uh, as well as uh, schools. Like Thrive had a big part on socio-emotional learning in schools and getting school nurses. So it was a very comprehensive plan and it was the mayor willing to put in that amount of money. Uh, you know, there's, there's been some critique about how it was rolled out, but he wanted it to be comprehensive and to, you know, the mental health Mental health doesn't work for anyone. I think the one mistake I want to point out is that even for wealthy families, it is difficult to navigate uh, because it's all through insurance and so many mental health providers don't you know, offer insurance. I have tried to help friends needing, you know, in, in times of crisis, friends who had insurance, you know, calling and calling and calling and getting rejected over and over again. So I think we, we should say that the mental health um, system is just simply not as accessible as, you know, every other part of our health system. So we need to we need to acknowledge that. I agree that homelessness, that you know, there are overlapping challenges and that the opioid overdose crisis is one, one part of it. You know, substance misuse is one part of it. Um, so the question is, you know, how do we prioritize mental health? One is to think about, you know, access to mental health providers, the psychiatrists, the psychologists. But one is to think about our communities. You know, how can we ensure that our communities are advancing well-being? And I do believe that, yeah, if people didn't have the stress of having to worry about homelessness, if they, you know, if they didn't have to worry about, you know, the costs of, um, you know, making sure that they don't, you know, that they can pay their rent. Like there is something to be said that social services are also good for mental health. But, you know, it's, it's a big question. On the opioid overdose crisis, let me say three things. I believe that we have to invest in treatment and uh, ensuring that people are not overdosing. We have naloxone. It is easy to administer. So it's basically something that reverses an overdose. And communities should have that. It, you know, in New York City, what the commissioner did is she signed a prescription so any New Yorker could buy this drug. It was a, a prescription for everyone. So naloxone is something. Then it's addressing, um, you know, people who will want to use drugs, whether or not 
you want them to stop. So there's been a lot of debate around having uh, what is called supervised uh, consumption sites where public health or health people basically watch people use and ensure that if they overdose, you know, you, you basically go somewhere to use drugs. And that's quite a progressive platform. But I believe that that is somewhere we need to go, allow people, you know, it's called harm reduction. And we need to hold uh, pharmaceuticals responsible for, for this and ensure that some of the money goes back to the communities. So I've jumped around everywhere, but let me know if you have any questions specifically to one of the, the Thrive projects. But all I want to say is that we need to think about mental health holistically. And we need to invest in our schools just as we need to invest in our, um, you know, the healthcare part. Perfect. Uh, switching to a different kind of health, I guess. It's pretty clear we're all living in a situation that no one could predict and that the current pandemic has solidified an economic state of chaos. Um, on the road back to normalcy, how do we balance public health with real economic anxiety? And what kind of fiscal policy do you think would best help address the two? So I think we have been presented with a false dichotomy of it's either the economy or it's, uh, it's health. You know, every economist agrees that the foundation of getting us back to economic prosperity and growth is to get the public health piece right. Um, you know, I've seen some pieces recently that have said basically, if we as a country were able to shut down for four to five weeks completely, we could kickstart again because then we could have things in place. I, you know, I haven't looked at the data to, to support this, but I can tell you that it is wrong to present these as either or because we are in this mess because of that because so many states and governors reopened too fast. They reopened everything too fast. So your question about how do we get our economy back? We first have to acknowledge that there are millions of Americans who have lost their jobs, but it's not about getting them back to work ASAP. It's about getting them back to work when it is safe to get back to work. And in the meantime, providing them with the resources, including unemployment benefits, uh, maybe direct cash so that they can stay home and be safe. And I think we have to be clear about that. People should not rush back to work because we want to, you know, stay, because we want them to go there. We can only do that when they're ready, when we're ready. So my COVID plan really talks about staging. There are some types of businesses that are essential. You know, obviously, you know, the grocery stores have always been and healthcare providers, but schools, schools, daycare centers. You know, if any worker has to get back to work, they need to know where their kids are and that they're safe and that they're supervised. Um, so, you know, there's a big push among parents to say, uh, close bars so we can open schools. You know, like having bars open doesn't provide the, the ripple effect that we need, but schools do because the ripple effect of having childcare open and schools open means that moms like me can actually work. It also means that these kids don't fall behind um, and put, putting them on a trajectory of, you know, worse, worse outcomes. And the reality, you know, Anthony, is that families that have the means will find a way around this. They will hire a tutor for their kids. They will hire their way out of this. And the inequities are, are really, really what we need to be worried about. We need to be worried that five years down the line, we will have a more unequal country than we did, even though we were also unequal before we started. So that is my motivation to enter. Okay, great. And Going more into the district, um, according to the most recent 2018 census, we see that a little over a quarter of the households in the fourth district make less than $50,000 in adjusted inflated dollars per year. So how do we ensure that we uplift families through a minimum wage while simultaneously ensuring that we don't drive automation, as we've seen in cities like San Francisco? 
and price people out of the job market and the communities they live in? So there's a lot we can do outside of those two ideas. We can expand earned income tax credits. We can do a lot in terms of providing more housing assistance right now. You know, in terms of um, the right to food, we have programs. Everybody, you know, we have WIC, we have other programs to enable people to access food. But housing is something we have failed. So many families pay so much. So we can think about their income, but we can also think about what they're spending. So expanding housing vouchers and ensuring there's more affordable housing um, so that families aren't spending a tremendous amount of their income on housing. We can also do something around um, healthcare. You know, medi medical bills are the number one reason families declare bankruptcy, and that is unacceptable. So Medicare for all, which is what I advocate for, will basically remove that risk of basically going, being pushed into poverty or further into poverty because of that. So our uh, approach has to be comprehensive. We obviously need to get workers a living wage, but we need to make sure that our tax policy is actually progressive. You know, we need to eliminate and reverse all of President Trump's tax policies because those have disproportionately benefited the wealthy. We need to think about things like the social security payroll tax cap, you know, and, and it, it, it there's a cap at 130,000 or so. I, I can look at my notes, but, you know, but basically if we eliminate that, we have a lot more money to spend on our social services and our tax policy has been regressive. You know, the fact that I have stocks and I pay less tax on the revenue on my stocks versus someone who has been working for that money, that is unfair. So there's a lot we can do in terms of fiscal policy to make things you know, better for poorer families. So that would be one approach while also securing a living wage and in a time of COVID, ensuring that our unemployment benefits um, you know, are harmonized. Right now, unemployment is state by state. Some states offer as little as you know, 30 or 35% of your prior income, and they only offer benefits for 26 weeks. Like It is hard at a time right now to be unemployed, and chances are it might take longer than 26 weeks to become employed. So we need to be thinking about um, unemployment. We need to be thinking about a lot more than just the living wage, but that is a foundational piece. Okay, great. And when it comes to on the idea of corporate taxes, we see that there are many private companies that prioritize green initiatives. So yeah. one being, for example, Tesla claiming that, you know, making a significant and lasting impact on environmental sustainability, it's uh, difficult to achieve without securing um, financial sustainability for the long term. And so you see that they've generated this positive free cash flow of more than a billion dollars um, for the first time in 2019. So going off from that, would you be a proponent of the U.S. government giving tech companies such as, let's say, Tesla, um, with strong environmental or humanitarian objectives, tax breaks to help them continue on their scientific pursuits? So I think we need to be investing in green energy. Um, so let's let's take it to there. The, the reality is we have been subsidizing fossil fuels for way too long, and we need to shift, and we need to shift in a way where we are subsidizing and providing some incentives for us to really meet our, our goals in terms of environmental targets. We need to be, um, you know, already the cost of solar has gone down, but for our district, for example, offshore wind has tremendous potential. But there are, you know, both legal barriers to, you know, getting the permits that you need, and also this fear of, you know, is this going to be in the short term, basically, uh, whether it's gonna be profitable. So we do need to be supporting 
companies and industries that are green, uh, because we've always done that. We've always used tax policy to support uh, industry. And let's just use that money instead of uh, on dirty fuel or fossil fuels, let's shift it to, to the green, um, you know, to green, green growth. Now, your question was about Tesla. And I, you know, I, I haven't looked at the numbers. I don't know exactly. You know, I, I would be of the proponent of we go, we support first, you know, smaller businesses, but innovation is part of where we need to be front runners. And as a scientist, I believe that research, you know, R&D is big and important. But here's my but. If it's federal money, say for pharmaceutical development or something like that, we need to ensure that people then, everybody has access to it. You know, you're putting federal money to do the research. You can't then be charging, you know, $5,000 per pill uh, because federal money went in to develop that. So we need to make sure that the equity part is just as strong as the investment in in the in the research and technology. No, I, I do see that. And um, the beginning of that kind of touches upon what I believed was part of the um, vision of having that low carbon economy. So I kind of uh, wanted to continue on that and ask what your vision was for the idealistic low carbon economy, what that entails, and how can we best achieve that? Yeah. So first of all, I think the U.S. needs to re-enter the Paris Agreement to become a leader globally. I don't think this can be solved at the state level. It's a federal, you know, it's national. A country needs to get back on track, but it's also part of a global conversation. A low carbon economy means that we need to think about where, where basically are we high, you know, is our emissions in our energy or is it in our workers driving to work? You know, in Massachusetts, 40% of emissions is due to transportation. Um, that's something we need to be open about. So we can do a lot on green energy, uh, you know, subsidizing obviously solar, moving away from fossil fuels, and we have to. And I do believe that we can tax uh, and we should tax fossil fuels. Although, again, because I have an equity lens to everything, we need to be very careful that any taxation is not regressive. And if it is, if we find that the, you know, the, a poorer household that is paying more on say gasoline and you know and it's much more percent of their income that we're providing some other tax credit so that it offsets it you know we should always be thinking about who is losing and if it's the poorest in our communities we need to offset that but you know we can do a lot on the energy front we can do a lot on our uh, you know efficiencies building efficiencies and we can do a lot on the transportation sector so um, I do believe that we can reach the ambition that you know young people across the world have been calling for, and um, to really transition us to to a green economy. Um, but we have to do it thoughtfully, and it has to be a just transition. Mm -hmm. And uh, just going off from the audience being um, a large portion college students, um, something that I know that I can say for myself, and from some of the data we've collected from polls, um, something that a lot of uh, the demographic in the district four were um, interested in hearing was more of the fiscal policy for advocating for making higher education increasingly affordable. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really important point. So, the fact that education is this expensive really is prohibiting so many uh, so many students from being able to achieve to enter. But even once they enter, to achieve, you know. To, to go into professions that they want to go into, you know, professions that are not as highly paid, but are so important for a society. So we have to have this conversation as to if we believe we are a country where upward mobility is possible, where the American dream is possible, 
higher education and the cost of higher education has to be central to that piece. I believe that we have to make it affordable for working families, free, two-year college tuition, free for anyone you know below a certain income. I need to be honest with you. I go back and forth and I've been talking to students about whether public education four years should be entirely free. Or if it should be, you know, if your parents make 500,000, you should pay a fee. And, and there are arguments on both sides. And I haven't quite decided. I have always said everything should be means tested. But the reality is, I can tell you how I approach the question. I will look at the spending and say, is this disproportionately benefiting the wealthy families? Or is it disproportionately benefiting, uh, you know, working class families or poorer families? And then I will come to a decision. But I do think community college, two years, I do agree for everybody who is, uh, you know, working class should should be able to go to college for free. Um, so, and a bigger issue that has come up in my discussions with uh, education experts is that it's not only that, it's the debt. We really need to address debt. College debt is really high, especially for black and brown students. And we need to pay attention to debt forgiveness, especially at a time of COVID when so many of you will be graduating into a workplace that probably will not pay as well as if you had graduated five years ago, if you're lucky. Sorry, I'm, I'm such a downer. I should stop. I should stop there. <laughs> no, no problem. No problem. Um, I just wanted to follow up on that. So um, I can see that um, maybe you're not necessarily um, aligned on a certain position when it comes to the education standpoint. But when it comes to prioritizing your social initiatives, um, where does the educational component rank in terms of making it increasingly affordable, debt forgiveness, and um, in also um, something that I've noticed from the policy initiatives on education um, from the campaign was um, that you guys had this um, forward initiative to start building um, community colleges that were also affordable in the fourth district. Um, would you mind just elaborating a little bit more on that? Yeah. Education is central to my the way I think about um, health, the way I think about health, meaning well-being and opportunity. And so um, it is part of this whole, you know, as a social epidemiologist that I was saying at the beginning, we know that um, education shapes not only your own outcomes in terms of your income and your well-being, but also your children's. And so it's a central part to what I was saying, the American dream. And so it's very, very important that this be affordable, that this allow for upward mobility. And I do think we have failed too many Americans. And we have failed them from day one, from the, you know, not having universal pre-K all the way to what we're doing in college. So, you know, th that's where some of the trade-offs come on, because I, I believe also that three, four, three and four-year-olds need to be, have access to, you know, you know, free education. And so some people will say it might be too costly to have both but this is where I come into this conversation. I don't think we are accurately capturing the co-benefits, basically the spillover effects of having an educated populace, the benefits to our economy, the benefits to our health, the benefits to our well-being. And therefore, we are undercounting. And we're, you know, when we're doing a costing analysis of a cost-benefit analysis, the costs seem very high because we're undercounting the benefits. And that's where I think we have to have a conversation. And, you know, it's interesting um, talking to sort of philosophy professors and other professors around budgeting. And they say budgeting is a moral exercise. And we are not adequately reflecting our budgets to reflect our moral values. You know, we put a lot into military and police when we know that we want to be prioritizing health and education. 
So it's a shifting and a requirement to, to talk about what is it that we value. And so I come to this from that, that education and health are critical to well-being. And so those are my two, two of my few, you know, the environmental piece is also very key to my campaign. Um, so I will be a strong advocate for um, ensuring that money that goes into education is actually um, narrowing the gap. So public education, big priority, uh, supporting historically black universities and colleges and Hispanic ones, you know, there is something to be said about inequities both across uh, income, but also race, ethnicity, and, and those are all top of mind for me. And um, when it goes to the actual um, financial backing of programs such as making um, pre-K and all the way up to higher education much more affordable, if not free, um, seeing that um, there might be some polarization that inhibits that from actually being enacted, would you be a proponent of adding to the deficit in order to um, pay for these plans? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I need to be open to that, that I am open to adding to the deficit. I'm also open to radical tax reform, you know, things like a 0.1% tax on financial transactions. You know, we know that people are trading trillions of dollars, a very small tax. It has to be small, so it doesn't disincentivize that. There are creative proposals out there around tax policy that can create, you know, can increase the, the tax base. And I mentioned a few earlier around, you know, getting rid of the social security payroll tax cap, but also inheritance. This is something that troubles me deeply. Wealth is passed on generation by generation, and we're not taxing inheritance the right way. So for example, um, if I buy a beautiful painting and it doubles in price and then I sell it, I pay tax on that doubling in price. But if I give it to my daughter and then she sells it, it the entire appreciation of my lifetime is discounted and she only pays what that one day or what that one week of the inheritance. And that's just unfair. Like we're allowing for wealth to be recreated without, you know, my daughter didn't do anything to to deserve this kind of free appreciation of, of my asset. And so we do need to think about intergenerational wealth and how unequal that is. And I bring that up because I'm a big advocate for reparations. And I should say why, you know, our country has failed black Americans, not only in the current systemic racism that we're seeing, but the federal government put in place measures around redlining, or our Social Security Act in you know, 1935 excluded agricultural workers and domestic workers, which were predominantly uh, you know, Americans, Black Americans and Americans of color. So we have systematically excluded people from creating the wealth that is now being passed on and not being taxed equitably. So all of this has, you know, we have to have a reckoning of how, how did people get to be as wealthy as they are and why are we not redistributing that wealth. Um, so yeah, I didn't quite, you know, I kind of went off on a, on a tangent, but I didn't know if he would ask me about reparations. So I wanted to throw that in. Oh, good. You covered it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, while I've been listening and to go off on Lila's question on just the polarization of our times, research from the Pew Research Center, along with just about everything else people are hearing in the modern day suggests that we're living in one of the most polarized times politically of our history. People are talking about politics a lot more and they're having a lot farther opinions So to each side. So I wanted to know on which issues will you work with the other party right now on? 
So the polar polarization is real. Um, and it's not a matter of, I, I think the question is a bit strange to ask me, which will I work on? Um, meaning I will work on everything that is important. If they will work with me, there, there is, you know, obviously some things we do not see eye to eye, but there are some things that I think we can take back to the basics. We can take back to the basics, for example, you know, being someone who has a lot of global experience, I think everybody agrees that this administration has both uh, embarrassed us and we've lost our standing internationally, has gone against a lot of our allies and has put us in a position that is unsafe. So on kind of national security and, and diplomacy and re-entering, you know, the Paris Agreement, the World Health Organization, um, you know, I think there would be broad agreement across all sides. And, you know, I would be able to work on foreign policy and all of that because I have the credentials of having worked at the UN for a decade. I also deeply believe that um, there is a desire, you know, if we can take it down to the basics of, you know, should we allow for, um, you know, kids to be living in such dire poverty in this country? Um, you know, I think the, I grew up in a very religious household. And a lot of my uh, values, a lot of my commitment to equity actually stem from that religious background of, you know, of equity and of, of a desire to like, you know, we are all human. So I do think there are ways to approach some of the challenges by stepping away from what our solution is to just accept as a joint platform was should, should people be dying because they can't afford health? Should children be living in poverty in a country like ours? And I do think that there is a way to reach consensus, um, but you know there are obviously some bigoted, hateful people who will attack LGBT rights, who will be racist, who will say that tax policy, that people are lazy. And clearly we don't see eye to eye on those issues and I will not compromise those values. So um, I don't know where we will find a compromise, but I do think that my science background, that my religious background, my immigrant background, uh, you know, by the way, I'm not, a, I, I should make clear that I'm not an immigrant. I, I was born in the U.S., but I grew up in Greece and I came back at 17. So it's an immigrant experience, but I was lucky enough to have citizenship always. So I can't claim that I was ever, you know, worried about that part. But, you know, that all of these different experiences put me in a place to be able to listen and understand. And um, yeah, it is very polarized. And I am, and there's a lot of hate, a lot of hate. Mm -hmm, for sure. Um, building off of that, I want to know, because the coronavirus pandemic that we're all dealing with right now is obviously something that affects everybody, regardless of political party, regardless of ideology. Um, stepping away from politics a little bit, though, I want to know that once this is all over and people can start to resume their lives safely again, what is the number one thing you hope that everybody remembers from this shared experience? Great question. So one, and one of the reasons I entered this race, and I haven't shared this story much, is I was really worried about us losing our shared humanity. Like I really was worried early on that we were being asked to close our doors, go indoors, you know, protect ourselves, protect our families. And that was bringing out the worst in people. You know, you would basically try and avoid anyone on the street. Don't smile, don't say hello because you were so scared. And there was this inward looking emphasis. And, you know, I was driving um, early on in this, in this, you know, maybe it was April, um, and there was a man, an older man who had fallen in the street in front of a bus stop. And he was kind of rolling because he couldn't get himself up. And there were cars coming and there were people standing at the bus stop and nobody was giving him a hand because they were terrified probably that he might be COVID positive. So we pulled over and I pulled him up and 
at that point, it occurred to me that because I'm a public health expert, I know that my risk of contracting COVID from this man is minuscule. His risk of being hit by a car is huge. And that was kind of a trigger to me to say, we are losing our sense of humanity out of fear. But then the upside has been, you know, the mutual aid. People are helping their neighbors and stepping in and buying goods. But we can't leave it to good people or good neighbors. The federal government needs to step in. So I hope that people will remember this crisis as a moment where we maybe lost ourselves a little bit, but then we took this tragedy and turned it into an opportunity to have these conversations around Medicare for all, to really transform this tragedy into a country that works for everyone. And I do think that the, you know, the overlaying George Floyd murder really brought to bear, you know, and I do think it's because we were seeing such inequities in terms of who was dying from COVID, that it was black Americans and then the George Floyd murder, like there is this urgency and people are saying we cannot move, we cannot go back to normal because normal doesn't work. So I do think that this will be known as a transition period that the pain, the hurt, the death basically made us commit to more progressive values around equity and around building a country that works for everyone. And that's why I entered this race. I want to be at the table to be part of that conversation and to bring data and these values so that we can build a country that works for everyone. Thank you so much for that answer. Um, I was actually really personally interested in knowing that myself because this is something like you said earlier, um, maybe to Lila and I privately, but this is something that we all experience and get to tell our kids about and tell our grandchildren about. Um, and it's a huge, huge part of everyone's life right now. Something that you mentioned earlier in the interview and something that you mentioned in your answer there right then was implementing Medicare for all. I wanted to ask a little more about implementing a timeline for Medicare for all and asking what will happen to those who are currently working in the private insurance sector. Yeah, that's a great question. And just as we talk about a just transition in the fossil fuels switch to you know a green future, we have to think about who are the losers and the winners of every significant transition, right? It is not, um, there are always trade-offs and there are people who will lose out. So we have to take that into account. Um, timelines, you know, I, I need to be honest with you. That is the type of thing that a data nerd like me will need to sit down with my team and, you know, look at the models and figure it out. But let me start with saying that, you know, this isn't going to happen overnight that some of the concerns that people have raised is like, oh, people are attached to their insurance are simply not true. People are attached to their doctors, their nurses, their pediatricians, their clinical providers. And we need to find a way to allow for that continuity of care. That if you have had you know, a doctor for the last 20 years, you should be able to continue seeing them once we transition to Medicare for all. Um, the third piece is that um, you know, private insurance, the there is, you know, there are transferable skills. You know, we have insurance companies that work on other types of insurance. So we have to think about, you know, the transferability. Um, but it shouldn't be, you know, that fear of the, the fear of the hiccup, the fear of, you know, what happens in the transition simply shouldn't be what prevents us from moving to a future that works for everyone and for generations to come. Like, it will be difficult. And we have to be honest with ourselves and we have to be explicit and look at the numbers and look at who is being impacted and how do we protect them. And I come to politics as an outsider and maybe that kind of honesty is, is gonna be hard, but I do think we need to be honest with each other, 
that difficult decisions will need to be made. But in the end of the day, if this works for most Americans, right now we spend more than every other wealthy country on our healthcare, even double as much as many of the OECD countries. And our health outcomes are worse. We have worse outcomes in terms of you know, cardiovascular disease, diabetes. We have worse outcomes in terms of maternal mortality and infant mortality. So something is broken and we need to talk about that in order to uh, move forward. And, and you know, I don't have all the answers and I'm not expected to have all the answers. I will work with the smart people who have the answers, but I will be honest to District 4 about what are the difficulties ahead. And I will be honest with saying that I'm going to fight for that difficult period to be compensated so that you're not left hanging if you are someone who loses your job. Thank you for your honesty. Yeah, it's, you know, sometimes things are a lot harder than they initially may seem to implement, but are still worth implementing. Um, so thank you for that. Um, you mentioned spending compared to other nations and how our outcomes are much worse. Um, just leaning into your international background, I wanted to ask how your experience at the UNDP transfers to the House floor. Yeah, I think it transfers quite well, <laughs> you know, in the sense of, I have worked for um, the UN for, for a decade, and I worked both at the UN Secretariat in the Middle East, where I was part of a, the agency in Beirut was in charge of economic and social development for the whole Middle East. So it was issues like gender equality in the Middle East, you know, difficult questions around how to get away from dependence on, on oil and, you know, during this kind of green economy, water challenges between, you know, um, for some of the countries there. So it was very much an economic and social development perspective. Um, and then I transitioned to UNDP where I worked as a speechwriter and an advisor to the former prime minister of New Zealand, Helen Clark. In that role, I was part of conversations, you know, with heads of state, with ministers, behind the scenes conversations around, you know, countries where we were urging them to, for example, um, you know, get rid of their, their um, subsidies to fossil fuels and the minister would say, but I'm gonna have a riot and what do we do? So a lot of that experience of negotiations of behind the scenes, how political calculus plays in, you know, even if you have the data, the politics are important um, and also seeing how progress can be made. The international experience I value the most is seeing countries and cities transform, truly transform. You know, uh, Colombia has put in place public transport systems that are amazing, you know, cable cars and really, really putting in place public transportation. And so that gives me hope that this country with its wealth can do better. Uh, it also gives me hope to think about lessons learned. You know, there's always this, you know, and, and you guys are students, there's always this idea that innovation happens in the North and, you know, countries in the global South basically replicate, but there's so much of the learning that can be done in the reverse direction. And I think during a time of crisis, like right now where we have high unemployment, we can learn from India's you know, job, job scheme. We can learn from unconditional cash transfer programs that have worked across the world. So there's a lot of insight that comes from learning from others. And I bring this expertise both in terms of the technical knowledge, but also the, the politics. You know, I have worked with in political spaces and that's something that doesn't show up on my CV, but I have been in so many tense conversations, you know, with Iran and the Holy See agreeing again on, you know, on a, a resolution against LGBT rights, you know, things that you wouldn't expect. Like I have seen how alliances are built. I have seen 
what drives people. And let me give you just one example. You know, China is now quite advanced on their, on their climate policy. And what seemed to have worked was air pollution and the health message. Basically, the public said, you know, this is unacceptable that we can't go outside. You know, the air quality has gone so bad that China stepped up on their, you know, fossil fuels and, and basically having much more ambitious climate policy. So what I bring is also this idea that a health lens can move us on many, many directions. So I'm excited. I'm excited to have an international background. And I think District 4 is excited to have someone with my background to, to, to represent them. Yeah, I was um, definitely a lot more excited to see that, although you are technically a freshman in the House, or at least running for its candidacy, um, that you do have a lot to bring to the table in terms of already having prior international political experience, which I think is um, very authentic to yourself, seeing that not many of the other congressional candidates for District 4 have. Um, something else that I was looking at when I was looking more into your pan, uh, campaign regarding um, the climate and what you have to bring uh, also from prior experience with international policy and opinions on the Paris Climate Accord. Um, there was a quote that you said about building climate resilience in the healthcare sector when you were uh, merging more of the uh, international and domestic values together. But do you mind elaborating on that a little bit more? Yeah, let me give you two examples. Um, UNDP, when I worked there, was running a big HIV program uh, for the basically helping the government in Zimbabwe, across many countries, but Zimbabwe is the example I'll give you. And what was happening was we were helping them procure all their drugs and ensuring that clinics had you know, what they needed. Zimbabwe has a very high rate of HIV. And yet the vaccines were not being held in um, the right temperature because they kept on being electricity cuts and then diesel was hard to think. So UNDP basically put solar panels across most of all the hospitals and, day and, and clinics and storage facilities. And that was kind of a win-win. You have reliable energy, you have a green, you know, resilient sort of energy. And also when there's some, you know, something happens and the diesel guy can't bring you diesel to run your generator, you have kind of, you know, a reliable source. But the saddest was I was in a meeting with the Minister of Health of Fiji. And he literally said to me, what can you do for me to make sure that you make our equipment in our hospitals salt resistant? Because there's salt water, you know, we have floods and, and salt water rise that we're concerned about in our hospitals, especially those that are in some of the, you know, islands, like they're really not climate resilient. So we need to think, you know, and I had worked in New York City at the health department with Sandy, you know, NYU's hospital, like basically flooded in the bottom. And, you know, you do need to think about climate resilient healthcare, meaning that not only are you able to provide um, help during a climate emergency, but also how you structure it, you know, there's buildings. But my interest in the intersection between climate and healthcare is that doctors and nurses have a very a trusted voice in communities and they can do better to be advocates for, uh, you know, the Green New Deal or, or just more ambitious climate action. And more and more we're seeing that. And they can do a lot in their hospitals to say, you know, we need to be using green uh, energy sources, you know, but the healthcare industry itself is represents around 10% of our emissions in our country. It's high. And it's a lot about our waste management, uh, but also what is like the supply chain. So what we feed people in hospitals, if there's a lot of meat that is, you know, part of the agricultural pathway to, you know, emissions, like you could do a lot. You could only provide vegetarian food in hospitals. You could only, uh, you know, there's a lot that can happen from the inside. And I think getting 
the healthcare sector to recognize, to walk the talk is something that I'm excited about because there is some movement there already. But that's the mitigation part. The adaptation part is what you talked about, the healthcare resilience, which is, you know, how do we adapt and ensure our, our, we have continuity of care during climate emergencies? Um, a follow-up to that was that um, also furthering into the polls and research, something that um, a lot of people who voted for um, being a lot more concerned regarding the freshman candidates um, emerging into the floor was the presence of certain lobbyists, especially those that were more corporate, the ones that control, let's say, the meat industry or pharmaceuticals, Monsanto. Um, we can go on and on. But um, what would your plan be in terms of negotiating policy in the wake of this corruption? Would you be the person to lead in acknowledging and pointing it out and going out of your way to go above and beyond? Or would you find yourself being more of the middle ground and trying to already work with what's already implemented? No, I'm, I am concerned about the influence of um, lobbyists on health harming products, lobbyists from health harming products. You know, we're tobacco, fossil fuels, meat uh, kind of lobbyists, the big, big ones, as well as um, pharmaceuticals, the influence on, I mean, pharmaceuticals are not a health harming product, but when they're not available at price, the prices we need, then we need to, to have a conversation. So they're sort of an outlier in, in how I think about them. But in terms of health harming products, they have no place in influencing politics. And I have worked on this at the United Nations. You know, we did work to get the alcohol lobby, for example, outside. You know, we were helping countries write their alcohol policies, their tobacco policies, because many countries, you know, you can still smoke indoors and you had industry behind the scenes writing the, the, the bills. So we were supporting countries to think through how to write policies that would protect their consumers, their people, not consumers, their, their citizens. In New York City, you know, we, uh, while I was there, we put in place the, there's a triangle with a, a salt shaker so that, you know, if you go to McDonald's or any other, um, you know, Applebee's, any, any of the sort of larger restaurants, you know, if one meal <clears throat> basically has more sodium than your daily allowance. And that was a big fight. It was a big fight because industry felt that, you know, putting that little sign would impact their revenue, but we have to fight, you know, being from public health, I have very clear lines of where the private sector is a hindrance to health. So um, yeah, you can be reassured that I will be pushing back against uh, lobbies on anything that harms residents of the fourth district, as well as um, across our country. Great, and as we conclude into the final uh, five minutes of the interview, um, is there anything that we'd like to highlight about your own personal professional experiences that you would say makes you a lot more qualified as a potential um, House representative amongst all the other peers in the race right now? So, you know, what I've been highlighting in my campaign is that there are 14 scientists and we can't trust that politicians will listen to scientists, that we need to elect them. So that's my main, you know, distinguishing factor. The second one is the global experience. It is unique and it's important not just for COVID, but also for our climate crisis, also for our racial justice crisis. Because to be honest, other countries like Australia, New Zealand, are doing better coming to terms with the, the legacy of you know, what they did to their indigenous communities. And so there is a lot of lessons to be learned and I think that's important to bring to bear. What makes me unique from a personal level is that I am a mom of a seven-year-old and three-year-old twins. And that is important to highlight. And there's another candidate that, that highlights that a lot because moms do have a different perspective. For example, during COVID, you know, I think if, it, if there were more moms uh, in Congress right now, schools, you know, schools would be top priority. 
top of mind. And they're not. And we are one month before schools are supposed to open and most states don't have a plan. And that we had since March to figure that out. And it just was not top of mind. The fact that I'm a woman also brings in a lot of the gender equality perspectives. And lastly, the fact that I have this immigrant experience, the fact that I grew up in Greece, that my parents are still in Greece, that I speak five languages, that I have a deep commitment to refugees because I've done a lot of work uh, you know, in, with refugees from you know, Iraqi refugees in Greece to Palestinian refugees in Lebanon to you know, working right now as a director of a center on health and human rights with refugees and you know, people who are both in our southern border, but also in Myanmar. You know, I have a unique perspective, both because of my identity, but also because of the diverse work experience that I've had. Um, and I want to serve. I want to be District 4's representative. I know I am different. I didn't go up through the ranks of, you know, doing local politics, but right now we're in the middle of a global pandemic and I am a scientist. I have the skills. I decided to step up and I hope that that um, urgency that I felt is also one that others will recognize as my motivation and, and say, let's give her a shot because she does have a different, a different background. And that's what we need right now in our Congress. And it's not about the other candidates in this race. It's what our Congress needs right now to get us through this mess. Dr. Natalia Linos, thank you so much for coming on to the first podcast of The Politica. We've had so much fun um, prepping for this and actually engaging in the interview with you. Um, good luck for the rest of your um, candidacy and the rest of the campaign. Um, just as a reminder for everyone, uh, voting uh, formally starts on September 1st. Open is on August 22nd. If you would like to help Natalia on her campaign, we will um, put some links down on the Politica's Instagram page, Facebook and LinkedIn into how you can help get on board. Um, thank you for tuning in. Uh, Anthony, got any final remarks? No, I think you covered it all really well. Thank you again, uh, Natalia. This was amazing. Um, really excited. This is the first episode. We're really glad to have you on. Awesome. It's been so much fun. And literally, I need volunteers. If any of you listening in want to join, it's never too late. We have 200 volunteers and they're amazing. And we welcome you, even if it's the last day. On you know, If you decide you want to do one day of, of text banking, you're all more than welcome. And thank you for having me today. Thank you for listening in on part one of our Massachusetts 4th Congressional District election series. Please make sure to subscribe to The Politica to hear our next interview with Jesse Mermel, a progressive Democrat and other congressional hopeful. For other content like this, please check out our publication and website. Thanks. Thank you.